0: Good morning, Springs Community Church, everybody just watching online, tracking with the Springs family here. My name's John, I'm so excited to be with you guys. One of the things you obviously know, if you've been gathering with us in person, we're now virtual, you can again, go find information for that on our website, social media, all of that. But here's the part I just wanna reiterate before we jump into the passage we have. We right now as a local church have an opportunity to adapt and overcome to situations and circumstances that have always been known and seen by God, but are completely new to me, to you, to our world. Here's what we have to do though, church. We have to continue to advance God's kingdom in our own life and in the life of this community. We're gonna do it virtually, we're gonna do it all the ways that we can, and we are going to have a mindset that is flexible, not frustrated. What will never slow down here at the Springs is the mission of God. But again, our methods are going to keep changing. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but I just want to tell you, if you're a member of this body, let's go. Before I pray, I also want to come and celebrate the reality of a July 4th holiday weekend, the freedom and the privilege that it is to be a citizen and a member of this country. It is a freedom that I appreciate. Is it a freedom that I am grateful for. The part, even as you see our culture, we talk about this holiday this year in a different way. And many of the ways we're starting to talk about things, even recently, since the tragic loss of George Floyd's life, I think the part when it comes to this July 4th holiday, I am reinforced in a truth that if you are a believer in Christ, I pray that this really reigns. When we come and we celebrate July 4th, when we come and we celebrate the privilege of the freedom in this country and everything that it affords, we must remind ourselves that our call is to be individuals under God. We are not a nation under God. That's been evident. But we, as followers of Jesus Christ, the way we operate, love, pursue unity, help, serve, give, we are called to live under God, and what happens as we do that? Righteousness exalts a nation. So, guys, happy July Fourth weekend. But join with me. Let's pray. So excited to jump into the passage. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the gift that we have to gather. And Lord, as we celebrate even this uh, American holiday, th- this July Fourth weekend, Lord, we pray for all of our elected officials. Lord, we pray for our president. We pray for the peoples, the members of the Senate. Uh, House of Representatives, Congress, state, local, elected officials. We pray for civic leaders in the communities. We pray for ourselves, God. For those who don't know you, would you transform their eternity and lead them to know you? For those who do know you, may they walk in a humble fear of you and then from that, lead people well. Lord, as we pray for them, remind that of us, remind that of your church. And even as we go to talk about what does it look like to stand in truth because it has consequences. Help us to do that today. Change lives in a way that only you can. It's in your name we pray, amen. So some of you guys know this, but before I moved to New Braunfels, I lived in Dallas. Loved Dallas. We were just right outside of downtown in kind of like this bustling, still urban environment. Loved it. It was all about city life. I was legitimately attracted to that. And then I heard about this kind of church, this church plant down in New Braunfels. Like I, I say it that way because before I moved here, I had never been to Schlitterbahn I had no idea what Worst was. I did not know that people came here to float the river. I just thought it was a town where I was trying to put as many S's as possible in the name. News, Bronze, Fells. I've since come to know it's New Braunfels. But I would come to this town, and guys, sincerely, and I say this, I was foolish i thought it was in the middle of nowhere this rural town and here's why i'd come and i would do these interviews and i'd go everywhere from green that was a place where we would do an interview and then sometimes we go up uh to a house outside of t a camp here in town but i never really went to like downtown new braunfels and when i say downtown i'm not talking like san antonio or austin i'm talking like we have a plaza and like a couple blocks like that kind of downtown but I would go to Green, and then I'd drive to TBRM, and the only road I basically drove the entire time was 35 to the Loop. So I'd get off the Loop, and that's where Vermendi, the whole thing, there was no construction, and you would just drive it, and all you saw was nothing. And every time I felt like, why does everyone love this town so much? Because that's one thing for New Braunfels, with all its tourism and people, there is an amazing amount of New Braunfels pride. And you get this if you're in San Marcus, Shirts, Zagin, Canyon. Lake. You get the feeling. And I remember thinking, why does everybody love it here? I don't get it. Slowly over time is that interview. Like I remember one time I went after a service here on a Sunday. I went and got lunch at uh, the beer garden right here downtown. That name escapes me right now. Had a great time. Got to see a little bit of the personality. But my first time really driving through downtown New Braunfels, and when I say downtown again, plaza and like quarter of a mile every direction, was my first day showing up here for work. I remember driving in, and it was the first time I started to see some of the personality, some of the quaintness, and why some of the people loved this city so much. But here's what's true. The more time I've spent in New Braunfels, the more time I've gotten to see the heart of it, the city, not just the loop, the surrounding areas, which are great, but really inside of it, I've come to appreciate, respect, and grow to love this city. Here's why. I stopped just driving around it. I stopped just knowing about it. And I started living in it. I know it may sound strange, but here's the reason why I share that. I think for many of us, like if you're sitting at home at your couch, you're watching this on your phone, wherever you are, like if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, like you grew up in church, you say, yes, God, I believe. I think the way I had a relationship with New Bromfels, I drove around it. I could kind of see into it at times, but I never really lived in it. I didn't get it. I think that's the way many of us have a relationship with Truth. Many of us have a relationship with truth where we drive around it. We know about it. We know enough of it to almost be inoculated and sometimes have the benefits of it. But we don't live in it. And because we don't live in it, we don't reap the same benefits, the same joy, the same gratitude, appreciation, and love. The reason I start with that is we are working our way through the book of 2 Timothy. We're we're in a series right now where we are today kicking off or finishing, excuse me, part two of last week's talk. Last week in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting there in verse 14, we talked about how truth has consequences. God's word, what he calls to rightly divide it, doctrine, the reality of what he means through his word, it has consequences. And so what were we called to do, as we talked about last week? We stand in truth. Today, though, we're going to continue talking about it. And today we're going to talk about how you don't just stand in it but we live in truth. And here's why. Truth is way too vital to know about or to just drive around. Truth, for followers of Jesus and for those who aren't, it is meant to be lived in. Because here's why. If you're a believer in Jesus, here's why. Living in truth leads to that sense of adventure and joy and connection with God that you want. I have the privilege, I talk to a lot of people about faith, spirituality, their journey, like their relationship with God. Many folks, there's this general theme. They grew up kind of around church, or maybe they came to, to church through college or something like that, and then there's this amazing moment where they trust Christ. There's this transformative experience, either through faith, or a lot of times they go on a mission trip, right? They go out of the country on a mission trip, or they go to camp. And here's what you end up seeing in these environments, It's these dedicated environments where there is this full immersion to, hey, I'm going to live in truth. And it's often a short stint and God uses it. But it's these times where people come and they say, no, no, no. I'm going to study his word. I'm going to connect with him. I'm going to share it with other people. I'm going to serve the way he says. I'm going to put others first. They live the truth that God has called them to live. And what happens? It changes them. But then they come back from camp, they come back from the trip, they come back from wherever. And all of a sudden, they think it changes. Like I I even have this tendency where I think, well man, no, no, it it was different there. But you come back and you start to say, well man, maybe the way I just served so sacrificially in Haiti, I don't do it the same here. Man, maybe the way I just gave so sacrificially there, I I don't do it here. Maybe the way I was so bold in sharing my faith there, I just don't do it here. And they come back, and they begin to water down living in truth. They drive around it. They know about it. They don't live in it. And what happens, guys? We end up finding ourselves at these, like, spiritual plateaus. Like, typically the way people would feel that, if they wouldn't even self-describe it as a spiritual plateau, perhaps this is you, they're almost kind of bored with faith. It's not that they don't love God or believe in God. It's not that you don't. Like you're there, you're home, you're discipling kids or you're a single and you're trying to be faithful. But when it comes to your relationship with God, there's no adventure to it. There's no excitement. There's no God is using you in his power and his presence to impact and change lives. It's just kind of in a rhythm. It's just kind of boring. Guys, the antidote to that, what we're going to see is living in truth. So grab your Bible if you're sitting at home, grab an iPhone, an iPad, turn over, grab the family, wherever you are, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We we looked at last week starting in verse 14, all the way down through 26. Today though, we're really gonna talk and teach through 22 through 26. But here's what we're gonna see: we're gonna see that we are called to live in truth. And we do that three ways. We run towards righteousness. We correct with gentleness, and we always, church, and I mean always hope for repentance. And if you're watching this and you don't believe in God or you wrestle with God or you think Christians are weirdos and we're just uh, hypocrites and all that stuff, hey, hey, one, we love you. We're so glad you're here. We, we get it. Here's why, though, I pray you end up seeing it matters that Christians represent truth because there's a God in heaven who says there's a difference between truth and lies, falsehood and reality. And he wants you to know that. For more of a background on that, though, you can go back and listen to our last week's sermon. So grab your Bible. I'm going to start again in verses 14, and I'm going to read all the way down through 21, kind of do a little recap, and then we'll jump into our passage that we have today. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy, he's a church leader in Ephesus at this time, and during persecution And Paul, this apostle, is telling him, Hey, Timothy, truth has consequences. Stand in it. We'll review that from last week. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Do not quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Viletus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in the house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable, some for dishonorable. Therefore, in this verse, we're going to focus on, because it really launches us into the the, the heart of what we're going to talk about today. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So guys, reviewing last week. We talked about how from that we see that truth, it has consequences. Truth matters. Words matter. Where you land in accordance with God's word matters. Approval or ashamed. And we talked about how we are called to stand in truth. But how do you know you're standing in it? You live in it. That's why you see at the end of verse 21 there, it says, hey, no being holy, they're useful to the master, ready for every good work. And now that picks up where we're gonna look at today. It picks up what God's trying to show you and show me about how it matters that we live in truth. How do we do that? I'm going to read uh, 22 through 26, and then we're going to come back up and talk about 22. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. We're talking about quarrelsome again. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of what? Of the truth. And they may come to their senses, that come to their senses, it literally means to to be like woken up from a drunken stupor. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Guys, truth has consequences. And because it has consequences, you and I are called to live in truth. Verse 22 tells us the first aspect of how we do that. Reading verse 22 again, it says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The first thing is you and I, we are called to live in truth. The first aspect of that that we need to address is you and I are called believer, Christian, church. We run towards righteousness. I love how Paul writing to Timothy, he starts it out, so what do we do? You flee youthful passions. Youthful passions, that's this general theme for the desires of sin in your life. What you want that is unholy and opposed to God, what are you supposed to do? Run from it. But you don't just run from, you always run to. And what do we run to? Pursuing righteousness. I love what it says, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You run from sin, you run towards godliness, and then you run with people who want to grow in godliness. I love the way the Bible describes them, those who call on the Lord, believers from a pure heart. They are taking a call to holiness seriously. Church, sitting at home, watching in the midst of pandemic, seeming like America's being torn apart. It matters that you live in truth, but it matters in that that you run towards righteousness because there's a direct connection between living in truth and running. Living in truth and running. Now, I'm not really a runner. Now, I know it's helpful for physical exercise, You need to do that. This past week, I went running. So by my house, there's this hill. Other people would call it a hill. I call it Mount Everest. Why? I'm dramatic that way, right? But I go out, I wake up, I start running, I run towards it. I run down this hill, and I turn around. I'm doing everything I can to get all the way up this hill. I don't make it. I don't even think I make it halfway up the hill. Until I literally, I stop, hands on knees, like I'm panting, I'm breathing, and what do I do? I just take another step. I take another step. I take another step. And I kind of walk for probably, I don't know, I don't know how many yards, 100 yards. And then I get to the top, but it's not quite the end. And I jog the end as I come up. I'm exhausted, I'm gassed, I'm tired. I come up to the top, and what do I see? I see a member of my community group walking back towards me. You see, to help me, he'd met me at my house, He jogged with me to the hill. He jogged with me down the hill. He jogged with me up the hill. When I couldn't make it, he kept going. And once he got to the top, what did he do? He turned around to come back to encourage, to help, and to basically make sure I was still alive. (laughs) I use that as an example, guys. When it comes to running from sin, when it comes to running towards God, one, it matters that you just take the next step. For some of the time, especially for me, it's just waking up early to go and physically exercise in that way or taking the next step up the hill. This is obviously a metaphor for the spiritual journey. But it matters that you do this with people that also want to run. This is why some of you, tragically, either here at the Springs or even in the past, you've been in community groups, but you know well, I don't have to teach you or convince you, you know well that just because you're in a community group doesn't mean you have community. And why there's a direct correlation between your life or the people in the group and their lack or desire to run. So how do you do this, guys? What does it look like to actually run towards righteousness and so by that live in truth, what is one thing you can run from? Like high school student, college student, whoever listening to this. If you have a duplicitous life, if there's two sides because you're too scared to tell your friends, to tell your community group, to tell someone else, to tell your parents, and because of that, there's this whole other version of you that doesn't know grace and love, run towards sin by the freedom of confession. What is the one next step you could take to run towards righteousness? Is it setting a reminder every day that goes off that just tells you to pray so you can talk with God? What is that? What is that next step, that one next step towards running with other runners, people who love Jesus Christ? Is it acknowledging the fact you're going through life by yourself? Is it acknowledging the fact that you're in a community group here, but you're not even trying to make it community? Or is it taking another step to say, hey guys, let's keep going further. Wherever you are, take the next step. We live in truth and we run towards righteousness. Let's jump back in. We're going to at verses 23 through the first half, I think of uh, 25. 23 through 25. Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The second thing that we are called to do if we are going to live in church, uh, live in truth Church, is we are called to correct with gentleness. Correct with gentleness. L- let's talk about this. Paul, he's first gonna remind Timothy of something we talked about last week. He's gonna say, hey, Timothy, as you go to encourage these people, remind them, don't be quarrelsome. He says this in two ways. He says, don't go and talk with people who are quarrelsome, and then don't you be quarrelsome. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about, well, what's the difference between quarreling and, in conversing, arguing, and discussing. Quarreling, it's often this heart of, you know, emotions get out of the way. It's attitude. But you don't want to hear. You don't want to listen. You just want to be heard. You just want to talk. That's quarreling. That's where Paul, he's saying, hey, man, if there's people in your life where you know that's the conversation, don't do it. Don't have the quarrelsome talk with them. And then he says, for you, Christian, for me, if you're quarrelsome, you got to kill that sin. Why? He describes us. What are we meant to be? The Lord's servant. If when you go to have a disagreement with someone, do they get a sense of service in you? Like servant heart posture, a desire to represent truth, and sometimes that's hard, like that's that's, uh, sticky. It's a little awkward, but a heart of like, no, John's just trying to faithfully represent. So-and-so's just trying to faithfully represent. The Springs is trying to faithfully represent. Or do they just see, that guy doesn't care about talking. He just wants to be heard. Andy Stanley, he's a pastor in Atlanta. I think he's got a, a great line. He says so many times, people make a point when God's calling them to make a difference. It's viewing an isolated conversation where so many in culture view it this way. It's like conversations now. It's winner, loser. God does not have winner-loser conversations. He does not call you as an ambassador to have winner-loser conversations. He calls you to be a servant. But what do servants do? They correct their opponents. I love the word that it uses, correct, because our culture right now, we hate that. I'm talking across America. This could happen in the church, everywhere. The word correct means someone's position is inherently wrong. It goes back to last week when you acknowledge the reality of truth. You acknowledge there is right, there is wrong, there is good teaching, and there is false. There is truth, and there is lies. When you correct something, either in an unbeliever or in a believer, you are coming with a heart of kindness, compassion, to say, hey, that's not accurate. That's not right. We'll talk about how to do that. But what I love this is he's even saying you have to be able to teach. Like he's writing this to a pastor, so of course it includes teaching in a one-to-many setting, but includes teaching in a one-to-one setting. Guys, you cannot live in truth if you don't know what it says. You can't teach it. If you haven't read it. Ask God to illuminate it and discipled yourself in it. But do you see how living in truth, you come and then what do you do? You correct in kindness, and again guys, we're in a culture that doesn't do this. I can prove it to you. Turn on the news. Turn on the news. I can prove it to you. Turn on, or I guess you don't have to. Get on social media. People are no longer trying to have civil discourse, kindness, compassion, gentleness. That's not even a part of it. You can turn on political media, and I don't care, Republican, Democrat, the whole thing. It's no longer trying to debate, disagree with a point. Culture now is if you debate or disagree with a point, people just try to destroy the person, to tear them down. I can remember in college learning this idea, and many of you I imagine know this. Students, high school, you get this. You live in this world. Middle school, you would too. You can debate things, but there's a debate style that's called ad hominem. It's where you no longer debate a person's point, their point of view, their position. You just attack the person. And I can remember someone even saying, anytime that happens, it's just a sign of weakness. It's a sign of weakness that they can't defend or break down a position or a point. And there was almost this righteous nobility to, hey, you don't ever attack the person. You always address the point. That's lost in culture today. Hey, church, Who needs to bring that back? You and me. But they won't. We exist in a cancel culture, if you know what that is, where they don't come and they want to do that. They don't want to have a conversation. Then what do you do? You patiently endure evil, living in truth. You correct with gentleness. It's scary, though. It can be hard. Uh, When I lived in Dallas, I went to Topgolf, like bowling meets golf, kind of. But after playing top golf, they have this batting cage. I went to the batting cage with a buddy of mine. Now, the last time I played baseball, I was in third grade, all right? It was the first year there was fast pitch, so a kid could throw it, right? First year that happened, right? And I, at that point, I don't know, early 20s, something like that. So it'd probably been close to 15, 15 years, somewhere around there, since I'd swung a bat, since I'd played baseball, I can remember my buddy, he played all through high school, almost played in college. He goes into the batting cage. You can set the miles per hour that the ball throws at you. He goes in and he puts it at 60 miles an hour. I can remember thinking, all right, professional pitchers, man, they throw that like 90-something, 60, two-thirds. All right, that's easy. I got the plate. You hear the machine kick on. It does this, whoa. And then when it kicks the ball, it goes, whoa. I can remember standing there. I square up to the plate. I got the helmet on. I got the bat right i pull it all up and i'm ready to just let it rip and swing this ball boom comes out i fell to the floor as fast as i possibly could i was absolutely terrified absolutely terrified i thought that baseball was trying to kill me I'm not even kidding here like it took me a minute to get up like i wanted to go slow it down turn it off why it had been years since i stepped up to a batter's box and allowed a pitch to come by. First time it came through, it was scary, man. Here's the thing though, over time, I never became really good hitter in that one instance, haven't gone back to it, but over time, what happened? It started to slow down. I started to get more comfortable. Here's the reason I share that. I think many of us, when it comes to, when someone says something that we know to be wrong, believer, non-believer, it feels to us like, this pitch has come at us and it's scary. And we want to duck, we want to hide, we want to shrink back. What I'm calling you to do is stay in the box. You don't have to swing at every pitch, church. But there are some pitches God has sovereignly appointed you to swing at, to lovingly, to kindly correct with gentleness. How do we do that? Let's say, here's practical things, let's say you're talking with someone who's a non-believer right, and they say something that goes across, and you just know it's contradictory to the gospel, right? And then let's say you're talking with a non-believer, and then they say something, and you know it is contradictory to the holiness of God. Which pitch do you swing at? The gospel. When it comes to non-believers, make the issues that we talk about in kindness, with gentleness. Make it about things that impact salvation in eternity. Why? Why? We should not expect folks to live according to God's rules when they don't know, love, and experience the freedom and the grace of God. That's how to think about it with non-believers. You gotta really think through, okay, when do I lean in? Second, let's say you're talking with Christians, how do you know when do you lean in? Here's what I would tell you. When you see non, or excuse me, when you see believers operating, advocating, or excusing sin, you lean in. Love, that does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. How do you do it? I would encourage you to ask questions. To Say, hey, could you help me understand? I just heard you say. There's a great book that actually, there's three lines of questions that you can use. It applies to believers and it applies to non-believers. What I mean by that is believers who are wrestling with matters of holiness that are wrongly dividing the word of truth. And it applies to non-believers who are coming and they don't know God And he gives three questions to help slow down, to help stay in that batter's box, to help not just hit the deck when the pitch is thrown. The first one he says, when someone says something, right, and it doesn't make sense, or you disagree, or there's a major issue, he says, ask this question, hey, what do you mean by that? They get to clarify. They get to explain it. I've always used these questions. They're so helpful. It's Greg Kokel, his book, Tactics. The second question he says is, what makes you come to that conclusion? Right, so what do you mean? And then how do you arrive at that position? Could you help me understand what informs that thought? And then the third church, and this is where it's your turn to correct. You say, hey, would you mind if I share with you a different view? Would you mind if I share with you a different view? Here's why I love it. Those first two questions, you are sincerely trying to listen, to hear, and to understand. You're not setting somebody up. You're loving them. And then the third you are correcting. You're pointing a different way to truth. This is what God's people do. Let's look at why this matters so much, why it matters so much that we run towards righteousness, why it matters so much that we correct with gentleness. Read with me again verse 25 and 26. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, and then we go on. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses. Remember, wake up from a drunken stupor and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The third reason why followers of Jesus Christ are called to live in truth is this. It's because we always hope for repentance. We always hope for repentance. Now, now before I break this passage down, the word repentance gets a bad rap in America, but biblically, it is a kind word. It is a loving word. It is an anchoring call to freedom. Repentance is is a call to stop going the direction of pain and turn and come back. It's the father looking to a child saying, the direction you're going, it's going to hurt. Come back. I don't condemn you. I love you. Return. Come home. One of the kindest things, excuse me, the kindest thing God can say to me and my sin, to a non-believer in sin, is repent. Come home, turn back. Now here's what's true about repentance. God is sovereign over it. This is clear throughout your Bible. He grants it as he sees. But why does it matter so much? Even as he said, God may perhaps Because he can use people in the midst of it. He can use those living in truth, and he wants to use you, church, to help. Because why? We are in the midst of a spiritual war. There's a spiritual warfare. I love it right here, even as it says, that they may escape from the snare of the devil. What is it to be caught in lies? What is it to be wrongly dividing the word of truth? What is it to be called in clinging to false beliefs? It is to be. In the snare of the devil, it's to be trapped, and he set the trap for you, and he sets the trap for me. Believer, non-believer, this can both be true. After being captured by him to do his will. We have a real adversary. John 8 describes it where Jesus, he talks about this adversary. It's John chapter 8, verse 44. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you guys. You are of your father the devil. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not, what? Stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You live in truth because we as God's people war Against lies. Lies that ensnared me long before I ever knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace and forgiveness that comes. Lies that can can still ensnare me today, where I choose to live or to operate in disobedience. And what does God do? He sends people who are running towards righteousness, who are correcting with gentleness. And he uses them. He's sovereign over repentance, but he uses them to grant that call to freedom. So what should this mean to you? As you stand in truth, as you live in truth, as you and I know in this world, this crazy upside down world that is not under God, you and I know that God's in control, not us. That we know the difference between God has a job, And we have a job. What is our job? To run towards righteousness. To correct with gentleness. But you know what we cannot do? We cannot grant righteousness. We cannot grant conversion. We correct. You can't convince them. You can't convert them. You entrust them to God. This should give you freedom, Christian, as you seek to live out this mission of standing in truth and living in truth. You know there's a God in heaven who's in control. He's never missed it. You and I can't grant repentance, but he can, and he does. So what do we do? We be faithful. But how do you really apply this hope for repentance? How do you and I really apply this hope for repentance? There's no necessarily action step, I, I think, besides a changing in the way you view people. Like students in high school, like do you view classmates as people with souls who God died for and he loves and he wants to spend eternity with? That he wants to freedom, free them from the oppression of a broken home environment or the anxiety of college and SATs and everything that's overwhelming? Like you, like single adults, like do you view other friends, your community group, the folks you hang out with, the people you see on Tinder or Bumble or whatever, do you view them as made in the image of God, loved by him, and he wants to redeem and save them? They have a soul. Do you, leader of a family, leader of a community group, servant in the community, Do you do this because heaven is at stake and God so loved you, he died for you? Do you carry that burden? Why? You were once. You can still be, and people are. In the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will, truth has consequences. You live in truth. Truth is a call to freedom. It's this gracious invitation that you're loved. He knows all your sin, your brokenness, everything you've done wrong. And if you believe in him, he forgives it all. He calls you child. He delights in you. But if you oppose him, he will grant your wish. He will honor the desire. He loves you, though. And he has sent me, he has sent you, believer, this church, to tell the world that message. It matters. I got a letter this past week. Actually, forgive me. I shouldn't say I got a letter. We, Springs Church, got a letter. Jonathan referenced it in the announcements. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. There was a mom Who came, got connected here, was wrestling through faith, began to grow in faith. And what does that mean? She ran from sin. She ran towards righteousness. She did it in the context of other people sincerely running towards righteousness, called to run, not sitting back, acting like a fake running club. They actually ran. But because of consequences due to sin from her past, which we all have, some of those consequences led to. Her being placed in inpatient treatment facilities on lockdown. And in that, her three kiddos, loved by God, loved by her, they were going to be placed into the state foster care system. And this church did what this church does fought to live in truth out of a love for God. They embraced those kiddos. She wrote a a letter saying thank you. This letter, it's addressed to the springs. I'd like to read it. It's two pages, so it's just a little bit longer. To the springs, the words thank you don't feel enough. Never have I been part of a church, church that's a people of God, so willing to be a part of my life emotionally and as literal hands and feet. Y'all truly and genuinely serve. Live In truth, I've never seen a body, and then she adds, and I've church-topped a lot that shows up like y'all do. I know we are all broken, and the human tendency is to have a deceitful heart. I hope to convey to y'all, though, that it is visible that Jesus is reshaping your hearts. I can see the masterpiece. I can see a race being run well. I was cold and you gave me a coat. Pure religion is to show up for the orphan and widow in their time of need. My kids needed the church. And then she adds, not the government. Live in truth. Y'all took me in the power of Christ as king is evident through y'all. Praise God, there's a redemption of the reputation of the church as this body fights to stand in truth and live in truth. She goes on. Being one who from time to time struggles with the question, it's a very fair question, is Christ the only God? People like you, this is the hope for repentance. People like you make it simple for me to see the power source. I love this. There's a peculiar way about y'all's service and heart. You don't just talk about it. You be about it. Church, why are we called to live in truth? God uses it. It is a call. It is a hope for repentance to those who don't know God and to those who do and whose lives are shrouded in darkness, to those who do know God, but they have become complacent to holiness. They're not living in truth. They're still driving around it. They're knowing about it. Guys, we've seen over the past two weeks that God in heaven, he loves this world. He has sent his word to guide and direct it. This is a ransom note from a father in heaven who loves you on a rescue mission. It matters how you divide it. It matters how you teach it. It matters how you apply it. It matters how you live in it. So what are we called to do? We run towards righteousness. We By God's grace, we take that next step, whatever your next step is, but we run. We correct with gentleness. We don't have to swing at every pitch that comes, and it's scary. But church, we swing even when we then endure evil. We swing. Why? Why do we do all that? Out of a love for God and a hope for repentance. We need God's help to do that. But here's why we must. Attorney is too glorious. Life is too short. People are too precious to drive around truth, to know about it, but to not live in it. Your life the adventure and the grace of growing in the power and in the presence of God, being used by God to advance his kingdom here to where folks can come and say, you were a part of my transformative journey of grace. Thank you. I got to go do it for others. That's too precious to waste. And how do we do it? By his grace, in accordance with his spirit, We live in truth. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have come, and it's this call to freedom. Lord, I'm asking for help in my life to live in it. I'm asking for help for your church that we would live in it, that we as your people would walk by faith. We would live in it. Folks who don't know you, they'd see that you're kind, and walking with you leads to grace. Freedom. Freedom. Help us to do this well, especially in a world where even when it comes to correct, people just wanna tear you down, that we would not shrink back, that we would lean in with love, in gentleness, in kindness. I need your help. We need your help. It's in your name we pray, amen. Guys, thank y'all so much for joining us virtually today. I can't wait to gather with you guys in the coming weeks as we continue to talk about 2 Timothy as well as navigate. How do we maximize these times as we're gathering at home or as many of you are today with your community groups watching from home? Because what matters? Mission doesn't change, but our methods do, so we're gonna keep getting better. I love y'all. Have a great week of worship. See you next week.